So welcome back to this evening's session and I hope you've had a fruitful day. Uh, this evening again, Chris and I would like to offer a joint talk. Um, so it's really two for the price of one, so to speak. Um, and we, we'd like to continue exploring some of this extended family of sati or this extended family of mindfulness. And this evening, the, the avenue we'd like to go in is to look at these four qualities that are usually referred to as the Brahma Viharas. Vihara translates as um, monastery or home. And Brahma really translates most widely as being divine or noble. So these qualities describe the possibility of making our home within them. Now these qualities we've begun to explore with Chris leading some of the guided meditations over these days. Begin with metta, this quality of befriending, this boundless friendliness. There's also the quality of piti, which is joyfulness. It's a quality of compassion, which in the Pali is anukampa karuna and the quality of equanimity, which is upeka. Now, because we've had something of a taste and some of you have some considerable familiarity, I think, with the cultivation of metta, um, we would like to, and we've spoken quite a lot around the cultivation of the loveliness. And, you know, I think in our groups and questions, we've, we've talked some about the cultivation of joyfulness. So although we will look again a little bit at joyfulness this evening, I think the weight of our reflection is going to be around compassion and equanimity and how these two qualities um, really are, are so woven into the very fabric of sati, so very woven into the fabric of mindfulness. There's a couple of things I'd like to say in just these opening remarks. Um, there's two dimensions to all of these qualities. One of them is an affective tone, how, how they feel. We know the affective tone of kindness. You know, we probably have some sense of the affective tone of joyfulness or compassion, perhaps of equanimity. So one domain of these qualities is the affective tone. But the most important domain, I think, is the intentional tone. Inclining the heart, inclining the mind towards these qualities, sowing the seeds of intentionality again and again so that they can flower and so that they can flourish. I think it's so important in the development of these qualities because if we see them only as an affective tone, we're chasing experience. We're chasing certain states of mind or ways of being. Whereas actually there is a possibility of metta and compassion uh, without any affective tone. They are developments that are intention-led as much as sati or mindfulness is intention-led. This is actually very experienced, particularly when you're teaching in more vulnerable populations um, because many people who are really in the midst of you know very low moods or um, self-definitions of unworthiness or impossibility they often feel to be somewhat exiled from these particular pathways of cultivation because they have a belief or an idea that they're supposed to feel a certain way that actually feels impossible to them and I think the only way that they don't have that exiling quality is actually to portray these, I think, in their, their more accurate light as ways of inclining the mind, ways of inclining the heart towards this possibility. The other thing I would like to, uh, I would like to say in the, this time is that when I cultivate these qualities, the phrase that I have found to be most helpful is in the midst of. 
to really acknowledge that these are relational qualities. Kindness in the midst of struggle or in the midst of affliction or in the midst of ill will. You know, joyfulness in the midst of a landscape of bleakness. You know, compassion in the midst of whatever is difficult and painful in this moment. And equanimity in the midst of all things. So these are not seen as rewards or, uh, yeah, they're not rewards for suffering. They're not rewards for struggle. These are very relational intentions that really place us firmly in the classroom of our lives with all of their moments of loveliness and the moments of difficulty. Uh, is there anyone to come in with at this point, Chris? I guess just to just to add that, of course, they're not random for random qualities. They're deeply interrelated and mutually supporting. Uh, so there's a very kind of organic uh, relationship between these four orientations of the heart that means that they can potentially hold all of our experience. So we've used this phrase, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And really, these are like, these four qualities are like the four points of the compass that can provide us with orientations for our intention, whatever landscape we're in, within human experience. And this word Brahma, I think also points to the sense that we can, we can never have too much of them. They're sometimes described as immeasurable. We can never have too much of any of them. We can get out of balance with them. <clears throat> we can get out of balance. So uh, there can be a sense, people sometimes talk about compassion fatigue. Perhaps we should think more in terms of joy deficits because there's been a loss of balance between the factors of joy and compassion or earlier today we were reflecting on the relationship between compassion and equanimity and how they need each other um, but but really part of our deepening exploration particularly if these have been familiar to you for a, for a time is really to sense into the interrelationships between them uh, and that that question, oh, what's needed right now? What's needed right now as a cultivation in response to what life is presenting? And I think as we've mentioned earlier, these are truly the almost the qualitative tone of sati. These are, these are the qualities that, that infuse, are infused in sati, they pervade sati. Huh? Without these qualities, sati looks something very different. Now, in the early teachings, the, the Buddha very much presented these qualities as pathways of awakening. The, the term in Pali is chetuvamuti, you know, the awakening of the heart. They're presented as pathways of awakening because they are so rich in the possibilities of understanding and very powerful shifts within our consciousness. Now, I'd like to just to, to, to reflect on that just brief, briefly. Metta, the cultivation of boundly, boundless friendliness, does something very powerful in the pattern of ill will and aversion. You know, it, and it's, it, you know how often we have aversion for aversion. You know, especially as mindfulness teachers, you know, I should know better. I shouldn't be so aversive, you know, and then I've got aversion for aversion. It actually has a powerful impact upon the landscape of aversion, really teaching us the freedom of releasing ill will and the affliction and the suffering of holding to ill will. And there's a, a quote, I think, from Greek philosophy where it says that, Holding on to ill will is like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. It's what it does to us. It's like drinking poison and waiting for our enemy to die. 
So meta is cultivated in that classroom, in that landscape. How to befriend aversion. How to befriend actually the objects of aversion. How to release that clinging and to find a way of being actually where there is a possibility of befriending. You don't have to like the difficult. You don't have to love the difficult. You don't have to condone the difficult. But as long as the difficulty is not befriended, the difficulty is compounded. I think we can almost guarantee that. The landscape of joyfulness as a sort of insight cultivation has really a number of powerful effects. It does something to this pattern of craving. This, this reaching out to, to be stimulated, to be excited, to be pleased, to be gratified by phenomena, by sensory impressions, which actually makes us a prisoner of the world of sensory impressions, always needing, always wanting, always somehow dependent, uh, our aliveness feeling dependent upon somehow being pleased or excited or affirmed in some way. So it has a powerful effect on craving, particularly as you cultivate this quality inwardly. Um, you, you really do get quite a convincing understanding that there is nothing this, in this world that you are going to gain that really holds a candle to the power of inwardly generated joyfulness. So the craving level is, is seen to be pretty transparent, pretty unrewarding, pretty unfulfilling, which calms actually so much of the busyness in our lives, quite frankly. Um, the cultivation of joyfulness has a lot to do with beginning to untangle these patterns of envy and comparing, of not feeling as good as. It really begins to dispel all of that. And it has a powerful impact upon underlying ideologies of insufficiency, of somehow being not good enough, a deficit in a culture. You know, and I do feel that we, we actually can so easily live in a world where there is a joy deficit. And we can have all kinds of resistances to joyfulness, you know, feeling that we don't deserve it or we're not worthy of it. We might have grown up in religious traditions that somehow see suffering as being more noble than joy. Um, that can be quite a big one, even when it's quite unconscious. Um, we can somehow feel undeserving or even in this landscape of a world where there is so much distress, you know, we might feel that, Joyfulness is somehow frivolous, uh, inappropriate. And yet, as we will speak about, joyfulness is what resources compassion. You don't have to deserve joyfulness. Compassion has something to do with understanding our relationship uh, to dukkha, our relationship to distress. Because we see that if we fear distress, if we fear Duke, if we're anxious about distress, um, we will spend a lot of our life actually in avoidance. You know, how can I get away from this? How can I make this go away? And that, those patterns of avoidance um, powerfully shape our sense of self, of somehow being incapable, unable to meet the life as it is. Um, whereas actually in the cultivation of compassion, in our ability to embrace dukkha somewhat fearlessly, this also shapes our sense of possibility. A person has the inner maturity of heart to be able to meet life as it is. And of course, equanimity has pretty much an impact on everything. Um, no longer being a prisoner of our world of reactivity, being able to be equally near all things. Um, understanding, equanimity is not a state in my mind, equanimity is an understanding. So this is the ground of insight that we're exploring together. Chris?
Christine and I have, have sometimes wondered actually whether this list uh, should in fact begin with joyfulness because uh, it is, seems so easy, particularly, you know, I've noticed this over the last few months where there's been a very collective sense of fear, a sense of stress, a sense of just kind of chronic anxiety. It's, it's so easy for the heart's capacity for kindness to get depleted. And yeah, it is a behavioral practice, the practice of kindness, but it feels like almost the doorway into this constellation of Brahma Viharas is really the doorway of resourcing of nourishing the heart with that which we can appreciate. So joyfulness, appreciative joy, appreciative joyfulness. Sometimes even joyfulness feels a bit too many stops down the line, but maybe I can start with appreciation. What in this moment can I appreciate? And that as a way of just uh, encouraging the heart to begin to take in nourishment, to begin to take in that which can give some energy or some resource or some capacity when the heart has become very kind of dry and contracted with fear, with anxiety, with aversion. And and so, you know, it does feel as if um, the practices of gratitude, daily gratitude, uh, you know, daily practices, even of pausing before we eat, just to be grateful, just to give thanks. You know. Moments in nature where we linger and let the greenness back in, you know, the greenness of things the beauty of things, the undemanding kind of easefulness of nature, to let that back into the heart. This is, has the capacity, as we know, gradually to unclench our experience and to create more sense of space, more sense of capacity. And it does feel like, as, as mindfulness teachers or those using mindfulness in our work, that you know, there's almost a, a responsibility to, you know, a joyful responsibility really to make a daily practice of gratitude, a daily practice of nourishment. Because we all know that into our classes, into our therapy rooms, into our hospitals, into our classrooms come people who don't have access to that right now. And, and to to enlarge our, our heart's capacity provides a gift to them, provides a sense of possibility to them. And that kindness is so much more possible when we feel resourced, isn't it? It's just so much more possible when we feel resourced. Compassion is so much more possible when we feel that the heart has been nourished by Empathy for the joyful, empathy for the lovely. Compassion and joyfulness, both kinds of empathy. One for the lovely, one for the other for suffering. And we can sense how our capacity for one tends to be pretty directly in proportion to our capacity for the other. So really to make a practice of joyfulness and the, the sense of sufficiency. Yeah. I could tune to the attitude of lack. I could tell the story of lack, what I'm lacking in my life, what's wrong with my life. You know, we so easily tell those stories. Committing to the intention of joyfulness is really to make a daily practice of telling also the story of blessings. The blessings that are abundant 
when we look for them, even midst difficult times, even midst pain in the body and the heart, can we let ourselves be touched and nourished by blessings? The early teachings speak of these as pathways, um, but highlight um, four elements of each of these qualities. <clears throat> the first of these elements is that the Buddha speaks about these qualities as virtues in the sense that they are the foundation of a most ethical way of living, a foundation of a most respectful way of living, because they are so, so freed of those uh, patterns of craving and ill will, which create unhelpful footprints in the world. So they are virtues, they are the foundation of ethical thinking, ethical speech, ethical action. In fact, the Buddha speaks about them being the basis of healthy societies, healthy relationships, healthy communities. It is about protecting and honoring well-being. The second way that the Buddha speaks about these qualities is that they are seeds of potentiality within each of our hearts. So in, you know, in my, my understanding, you know, the great genius of the Buddha was actually to build upon what we already know or have already glimpsed. We may have many less moments than we would like, but we all know the taste of friendliness, whether we've been on the receiving end of kindness or find moments of unhesitating kindness in our relationship to others. We all know the, the taste of joyfulness, perhaps again, not as much as we wish, but we know moments when our hearts have been gladdened or are gladdened. We know this is possible for us. We've all tasted moments of compassion, either, being, or either receiving it from others or again, those moments of unhesitating reaching out to another person in distress. And we have probably all known moments, perhaps surprisingly so, of balance and equanimity. So this is very important. And Sharon Salzberg, in her book on, on Meta, quotes a poem which has the title of Reteaching Loveliness. Almost reteaching ourselves of the loveliness of those moments. Now, many times in our lives, of course, those, those glimpses of kindness or joyfulness or compassion have felt very, to be very episodic. You know, they arise, we, we really taste the value of them, the depth of them, and then somehow they're lost again in the busyness of our lives or the busyness of our minds. But what the Buddha is actually saying is that these don't have to be episodic. These can be the places where our, our hearts and minds have made a home. They can be cultivated. So the Buddha also speaks about these qualities as being fruitions. They are, they are perhaps a description of the most, uh, the greatest depth of emotional maturity and freedom. It is, is infused with these qualities. So they're fruitions. They can be brought to a place where they actually are embedded, almost felt in our bones. And he also spoke about them very much as being pathways. <clears throat> These are qualities that we don't need to chance. These are qualities that we cultivate as much as we cultivate our capacity for mindfulness. We cultivate our capacity for these qualities that are always interrelated. Isn't that Chris? Mm -hmm. Yes, this, this phrase, in the midst of, it, it actually points to, I think, quite a radically different way of understanding practice. Because we can often have a sense, uh, sometimes if we read the early teachings, we can have a sense that, that our job is to be mindful of uh, difficulty of dukkha and to practice letting go. And this teaching on the Brahma Viharas 
really asks us, what are we cultivating in the midst of experience? Recognizing that we're always cultivating something. We're always cultivating something. You know, if, if I uh, am ruminating um, with anxiety, I'm practicing anxiety and I'm getting better at anxiety. You know, I can practice depression and get better at depression. But that possibility in the midst of the difficult to, to give attention to what is being cultivated through actions of body, of speech, and of mind. Kindness is uh, so much about a way of relating and acting isn't it? A way of uh, practicing a sense of seeing people's humanity, establishing a sense of connection, even if only fleetingly through saying hello, uh, and, and really noticing that how I behave shapes how I feel, what intentions I'm enacting shape how I feel. And, uh, you know, similarly, in many ways, the cultivation of, of, of joyfulness is about moments of pausing and, and practicing appreciation, moments of, of actually enacting a sense of appreciation. So again, this, this, this real sense that even in the midst of really difficult times, really difficult times, these pathways, these possibilities, these seeds of potential in our hearts and in our bodies are something that we can practically water and cultivate and gradually uh, bring to fruition. And this, of course, is part of the, the, the value of phrases as well. <clears throat> using phrases, using words, not just on the go, not, not just in meditation, but on the go, using words and phrases in situations of difficulty that we just keep close by because there's something about fear and something about aversion that has forgetfulness at its core, forgetfulness of what could be most helpful. Don't we find that, you know? Wasn't it so easy early in the pandemic when there was this kind of sense of pervading fear in the culture just to find ourselves going with the rush of that or going with the freeze of that and forgetting what we hold most dear? And, and words and phrases and little um, kind of practices such as when we sit beginning with moments of kindness or beginning with moments of gratitude. When we eat, when we walk into uh, a shop, you know, just to use that as a bell of mindfulness, can I practice kindness here? You know, rather than all the other things we could be practicing in, in that situation. So really to, to move these from good ideas which they could just be quite theoretical good ideas, really to move these into embodied actions of body, of speech, and of mind through using these, these phrases and reminders to ourselves. And as, as Chris is really pointing to here, you know, this is not an effort to make ourselves joyful. That's an impossible task huh? and becomes just another demand. But what we are really training and doing is learning to make room for joy. You know, one of the translations of the words for compassion is the heart that can tremble in the face of distress. And for joyfulness, it's a heart that can tremble in the face of the lovely. But for that to be so requires mindfulness. And it requires our ongoing willingness to pause and, and to listen and to be wholehearted, to create those spaces of possibility. 
If our days are an endless momentum of doing and busyness, it is a sure way to leech joy from our lives. The, 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 the symbol in Chinese calligraphy for busyness translates as heart killing. And although none of us can avoid probably, you know, the numerous responsibilities we have to take care of in our lives, to be sensitive to that mind state of busyness and learning really how, how close joyfulness can be when we cultivate those moments of pausing and stopping and cultivating a heart that can tremble in the face of the lovely. You know, I, I want to say a few more words of joyfulness because we do want to actually make time for the others. It's also about celebration. And, you know, one in, certainly sometimes in the, in the traditional uh, laying out of these qualities, it's, it's about celebrating the happiness of others, um, celebrating the well-being and good fortune of others. But this also needs to be internalized because many people are, are, you know, don't have difficulty in praising others, thanking others, feeling grateful to others. Many people have much more difficulty in appreciating themselves. And I do feel there's a place, you know, at, at the end of every sitting you complete, you really should pat yourself on the back and say, well done. You know, it doesn't matter how it was, you know, it, it, that's completely irrelevant. But appreciating your showing up, appreciating your sincerity, appreciating your intentionality. And there's something in that which is, is so important because we, we have far more practice and far bigger history in self-criticism and in self-judgment than we do in self-acknowledgement. And again, we can come from traditions that say, oh, well, that's just pride. You know, you shouldn't do that. You know, it, it, you know, you should never go there. It's not pride. It's about appreciating actually all of those qualities of sincerity and courage and willingness and steadfastness and to be able to say, well done, well done. And it doesn't matter how it was. And actually you can almost sense, you know, I often think about joyfulness as a cultivating this sort of smile in the heart. You know, it, it doesn't have to be high or intense or euphoric or any of those things. Sometimes it's just a very quiet smile in the heart that comes into being, that emerges into view. When we make space and we make stillness and we cultivate wholeheartedness and we're able to say, well done, and really feel that it's true. So really, really that encouragement not to, not to inflate joyfulness, you know? not to put it on some distant horizon, but to know that joyfulness is not an optional extra in our life. This is what resources us. This is what inspires us. Can you imagine a pathway of practice, you know, go spanning over decades where every time you sat down in your cushion, you rolled up your sleeves and gritted your teeth and felt, you know, oh, one more hour in battle with Mara, you know, it's so joyless. You know, it's so joyless. I wonder how anybody could possibly continue or sustain their motivation, but even to be able to smile at your cushion. You know, no matter how it is, and to say this is this is a worthy, dedicated space, you know, and and to bring that smile in the heart into that time, not inflating it, um, not romanticizing it, but that this sense of easefulness and gladness and contentment and wellness in the moment. We could spend quite a bit of time with this. You get this. This is why we never complete this. But, we do. <laughs> but just you know, these these little behaviors and practices that help help embody these brahmaviharas. Um, you know, what might be the behaviors of compassion? Well, we could quite rightly say infinite. So many expressions of compassion but perhaps they all start in listening, being willing to listen. The 
the bodhisattva of compassion in, in the Buddhist teaching, the, the, the being who is seen to embody and represent the kind of perfection of compassion, Kuan Yin. Her name, his name translates as the one who listens to the cries of the world. And as Christina mentioned, there are these two words in Pali for compassion. One is this word anukampa that she's just mentioned, anukampa, which means to tremble with, to tremble along with. And perhaps that represents this quality of, of deep listening and empathy, a willingness to be present for another, suspending our agendas of what we think should happen, suspending how we think they could fix their problems and just being present, openly present in a grounded kind of attentive way, embodied listening. And isn't it the case that it's the quality of our listening that determines the skillfulness and the appropriateness of our responding? wouldn't we say that the quality of our listening determines how attuned our response is. This other word, which is perhaps more familiar for compassion, the word karuna, uh, which actually comes from the, the word to do, uh, to, to turn outwards and to do, to respond. And We've used quite a lot already in this retreat, this word appropriate, appropriate. And just an invitation to pause for a moment and just reflect on the significance of that. Uh, there is, as some of you will have heard us account before, the Zen story that, in which the student asks the teacher, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? What's the goal of a lifetime of doing this practice? And the answer comes back, an appropriate response. And what a beautiful goal to have for our practice, that our practice is about cultivating our capacity to respond with increasing appropriateness to the joys and to the sorrows that we encounter in ourselves, in others, in our lives and for us as mindfulness teachers and therapists and parents and partners you know in in those we we work and and live with you know i sometimes think in mindfulness teaching that the part that causes most teachers most anxiety is the inquiry process does anybody recognize that you know people can feel quite daunted by the inquiry process and somebody's sharing about their experience and the teachers thinking, oh, now what should I say now? What does it say in the green book? Uh, you know, what, what, what's the right answer here? And become so, it's easy to become so preoccupied with trying to get it right that we're not actually listening. And what is it when somebody's sharing about their experience? Just really to suspend all agendas, ground ourselves and breathe with the impact of what they're saying, letting the heart's intelligence discern what is an appropriate response. And so often when we do that, so often, we can, we can surprise ourselves with what comes out of our mouth, you know, or surprise ourselves with the, that, the sense of somebody feeling met by a quality of deep listening. And it does feel like this is, is it perhaps the greatest gift we give our clients and give our patients and give each other in this human life deeply to listen to each other, deeply to honor each other by listening? And isn't that what compassion is at its heart about? our capacity for deep listening. It's a way of embodying compassion in our lives, in our relationships.
And I also just really would like to highlight the importance of this, this balance and this relationship between empathic listening, the heart trembling in the face of, and then the responses we, that we bring or the actions we undertake. You know, my, my own sense is, of course, that many people in our culture are quite sort of um, habitual fixers and doers. You know, th this is part of our training, you know, part of our upbringing. But if we move into response or action and skip over this empathic listening period, and that's when I think we, we move into fixing or trying to fix. And the reality is that not all affliction and not all pain in this world has a solution. It can't all be fixed. But it always asks for that wholehearted listening. Um, it, it is sometimes to an aspect of this, a couple of things, First of all, you don't have to feel compassionate to act compassionately. I think that's so crucial. You know, sometimes we, we might believe that we have to wait for that, you know, rush of compassion before we're moved to act. Actually, you don't have to feel compassionate to act compassionately. It, it is a commitment of intention. It's a dedication to an intention that we know is healing and that is liberating. So feeling actually can have very little to do with this. The other aspect I would want to say is that sometimes I think when you see the sort of traditional portrayals of compassion in the images of, say, like Kuan Yin that some of you might know, to, know, might know it, it's so often in this kind of receptive stance, you know, this very gentle arms outstretched, eyes open, you know, this very welcoming uh, kindly stance. And I think it's easy to overlook that in the early teachings of compassion, Kuan Yin is also portrayed in a lot of different forms, including that of the armed warrior. You know, going through life with their crossbows and their shield and their weapons and their commitment to bringing the causes of dukkha to an end. Because compassion is not just about comforting that can be part of it. It's not just about consoling. That can be part of it. But the major foundation of compassion in the early teachings is this dedication to bringing dukkha to an end. Now, some dukkha doesn't come to an end. Aging, sickness, death does not come to an end. But ignorance can come to an end. Hatred and greed can come to an end. And we know the toxicity of hatred and greed and ignorance in our world and the commitment to bring that to an end. So there is in, within this, 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 these dimensions of compassion also a, a great depth of courage in relationship to suffering. And this is not easy for us in our lives always to say no to that which is unacceptable. And yet there is much in life which is unacceptable simply because it perpetuates distress and affliction and is born of ignorance or greed or hatred and it takes doesn't it just take a lot of courage to stand up to that and to say no you know? and yet we see that you know all social transformation all political transformation all transform all, yeah, all transformation in terms of justice and equality have been born of people's willingness to say no to the unacceptable and you know we're part of that we are truly part of that, you know, and it can be in the small situations in our lives or the bigger situations in our lives. How do we say no to that which is unacceptable without hatred, without hatred, without self-investment, without a need for a particular outcome, but just to be able to say no to that which is unacceptable because it perpetuates distress. So I think it's just so important to, to bear in mind this aspect of compassion, uh, which is you know, really concerned with how we act and how we speak and how we think and how we relate. You know, that, so there's these, these two elements, uh, the receptivity and the intentionality of bringing dukkha to an end. 
Yes, when we listen deeply to our societies at this time, when we listen <coughs> deeply to our relationship with nature at this time, with the climate at this time, what are the appropriate responses that come forward? And those may require tremendous strength. They, they do require tremendous strength in our no, in our standing up. Uh, and, and protesting and saying, not in our name. I sometimes reflect on the political philosopher Edmund Burke's statement that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing. For good men and women to do nothing. And our, our retreat centers tend to be filled with very good women and men and people of other genders as well, as our society is. And it, there can be a danger in this practice of a kind of contemplative passivity. And on a retreat that some of you, I think, attended earlier in the summer, one of the participants envisaged a, a, a statue of Kuan Yin with many hands and arms, some of them holding PPE equipment some of them holding uh, what it takes to support elderly people in care homes, some of them holding signs saying black lives matter or saying elected leaders should not tell lies or saying extinction rebellion. And it does feel as if in our age, as Christina says, we're called, we're called to compassionate, strong, compassionate responses, uh, acknowledging the very many different forms that those responses can take. They could, they could take something that nobody else can see, but still uh, uh, arise as a compassionate response to difficult times. You know, so really just to kind of honor the full range of Kuan Yin's uh, responsiveness of our responsiveness in the situations and times through which we live and really to include in that responsiveness to our own internal conditions of what's possible for us at any time, what's, what's uh, a compassionate response to the internal as well as the external conditions. And I, I do think it's very important just to state that compassion doesn't exclude anyone. Uh, in the early years of my training and very often in traditional trainings in compassion, one begins with actually really turning towards those who are, we might say, in the midst of quite innocent suffering. They are not the, the, the um, creators of their own distress. You know, the, you know, the, <clears throat> the wounded child, you know, the alien elderly person, the, the ones who are really struggling with, with, with conditions that are unbearable. So it would often begin with those, but then traditional practices then go from that actually to those who perpetrate suffering, to those who perpetuate distress, to those who cause harm. You know, there's a, a, a say, an early Greek saying, it says that only those who don't deserve their suffering deserve compassion. That's so cruel, isn't it? That only those who don't deserve their suffering are deserving of compassion. So my early teachers would encourage us to, to really, you know, bring into our field of attention, bring into our field of awareness, you know, the people who we identify with as being, you know, harmful, um, uh, you know, oppressive, um, tyrannical, you know, all of the, the most difficult people in the world and say, can you find compassion for ignorance? Can you find compassion for ignorance? Because if you cannot find compassion for ignorance, it is only a partial picture of compassion. It doesn't mean excusing. It doesn't mean condoning. It doesn't mean not doing all we can to stop the, the, the outflows of that ignorance. But compassion doesn't cast anyone out. And this is so hard for us, you know, and, and certainly when in the early years of my practice and, you know, training and traditions that were, you know, really highlighted this quality, uh, you know, uh, 
being told this by my teacher was, you know, unacceptable for most of us. We'd say, well, you know, feel compassion for them, you know, you know that, but they do this and they do that. And, and he, he only had one stock answer. He would say, swallow the blame. Swallow the blame. And, and we'll get into all these, all right, no, I can't swallow the blame, you know. Oh, you know, just keep doing it, you know. It, 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 it's possible. He'd say, swallow the blame. And then I realized, actually, what he was really saying is compassion doesn't leave anyone out. And it knows the foolishness and the harm that is born of ignorance. But where is the beginning of ignorance? That we can't tra trace. Who are those fortunate enough to have the capacity and the resources to begin to investigate ignorance? It's, it's a minority in this world something to be celebrated, something to be appreciated. Can we find compassion for those who are lost in ignorance? This is our greatest, our greatest challenge, and I would never say that this is easy. And it, as I mentioned, it never stops us saying no. It never stops us saying no. But it doesn't cast anyone out. Probably Maybe we can hear. is quite helpful here. Yeah, well, maybe we can hear the presence of equanimity in what Christine is describing. Because equanimity is what protects, protects compassion from falling into despair, overwhelm, or indeed into its opposite, which is cruelty. Equanimity is that which protects joyfulness from just becoming kind of ungrounded intoxication, which is its near enemy. Equanimity is what protects kindness from becoming a kind of clinging and attachment and a kind of being nice that isn't really coming from a kind heart. Equanimity is that coolness, that balance, that knows that life is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Equanimity is what happens in our nervous system when our feet are on the ground and we're in contact with the lower half of our body as we're teaching mindfulness. And have a sense of stable foundation that supports the heart sensitivity. Equanimity is that which says, I care for you deeply. I care for you deeply, but your suffering and happiness are born from your choices, not from my wishes for you. Equanimity is that which knows that this too will pass. And it is, equanimity that is this kind of maturing, depth of maturing of the wisdom faculty of the mind. Depth of maturing of the wisdom faculty of the mind that can be with the ever-changing dance of Vedana, can be with a wider and wider spectrum of Vedana from the, the intensely pleasant to the intensely unpleasant without losing that groundedness in intentions, in what we are really seeking and wanting to practice in our lives in terms of wisdom and compassion. It's interesting that this word in Pali, Upeka, it translates both as equanimity and as indifference, the same word which kind of shows that the shadow side of equanimity is this, you know, kind of stoic, indifference, you know, not really caring. It's so important to remember with equanimity that it never leaves the other three Brahma Praharas behind. Equanimity is pervaded with kindness, with compassion, with joyfulness. And the translation of equanimity that I'm particularly fond of is in the midst of, or in the middle of, in the middle of, to stand in the middle of. This is where we already stand, by the way. 
although at times with craving and aversion might tell us we want to stand somewhere else. We are already stand in the middle of this life, this body, this mind, these vedanas, these relationships, this world, we already stand in the middle of this. And equanimity teaches us to stand in the middle of without being knocked off balance, recognizing events in our lives can be truly terrible, truly difficult. Our reactions to them knock us off balance even more than the actual events. I think of equanimity as an understanding, a maturation of insight. And it's really, I, I think I referred to this earlier in the week of, it, it's a place where we really have fully put down our arguments with the unarguables. We are no longer going in those places of saying, this shouldn't be happening, life is unfair, I want it to be like this, this shouldn't happen to me. We've put down our arguments with the unarguables. And when the Buddha speaks about this development of equanimity, we are living in the light of our understanding of change and impermanence. We are living in the light of that, not pretending, not trying to make things stand still. We are living in the light of that understanding. We are really living in the light of our understanding of dukkha. Being able to stand in the middle of aging, sickness, death, loss, grief, and being able to liberate those very difficult experiences from our reactions to them. We already stand in the middle of fluidity and non-self, as hard as that is to acknowledge. There's nothing I can call mine. You know, there's nothing I can, I can take ownership of. There's nothing that I can possess and is that ever freeing because then I'm not identified, defined by it. So equanimity is really the fruition also the understanding of these three characteristics and living in the light of those understandings rather than in the light of pretending. That's where we find balance. So if this practice and if our mindfulness teaching is oriented as indeed we're encouraged to orient it towards supporting the journey from reacting to responding, from reacting to responding, this is the cultivation of equanimity. The cultivation of a kind, a resourced, a joyful, a compassionate equanimity. And this is where there is this complete unanimity in, 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 in the, the, the direction of travel between uh, the early Buddhist teachings and uh, contemporary mindfulness-based interventions that both set the heart's compass towards the capacity for this uh, engaged, present, grounded responsiveness rather than reactivity to life's joys and its sorrows. And in this is freedom. The Buddha sometimes uses this word equanimity as a synonym, this word upekka as a synonym for nibbana, as a synonym for nibbana, that it points to the heart's potential to be really engaged, really engaged, not dissociated, not at some privileged distance, not in denial, not kind of numbing out as we so easily can amidst the overwhelming challenges of life, but, but present, engaged, but responsive rather than reactive. And with a very cool head and a very warm heart, a very warm heart that, that feels, that is affected, that is touched by, that empathizes with. But the cool head and the grounded body that support choice in that place, choice of wise response. Not again as some idealized goal, but as a practical possibility that, that we can each know 
in little ways and in you know, sig really significant ways in our lives. And that is truly part of the gift that you as mindfulness teachers and therapists, as well as parents and uh, teachers and doctors in other contexts, as I know some of you are, really offering through your practice. And it's priceless. It's priceless. Uh, and it really is, uh, in a sense, to realize the human heart's potential. So, yeah, these, these crown jewels of the Dharma, these, these four qualities. Some of you will know Christina's written a lovely book on this theme, and uh, they really are a lifetime's contemplation, a lifetime's contemplation, and utterly integral to our practice and our work as mindfulness teachers. So, uh, really, uh, whether this has been new to you this evening or very familiar, just uh, let's uh, kind of support each other in recommitting to our, our practice of these qualities as part of our gift to ourselves and to the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.